to see from the safety tech landscape is a lot of innovation and a lot of creativity in trying to think through how to tackle these very specific targeted harms. Just to kind of conceptualize what safety tech is again in comparison to cybersecurity, which I think people know a lot more. So cybersecurity focuses on systems. Safety tech focuses on humans. Think about it in that way. They kind of complement each other. They work in parallel, so to say. But really, there's a lot of bottom line benefits to safety tech adoption that go beyond just an individual human. You know, there's a lot around brand integrity, reputational awareness, um, user retention, reduced churn. Um, reducing um, customer acquisition costs, but really being able to creatively think through a solution to mitigate some of the harms before they even reach a human being. Maya Daver Masihan is the head of online safety at Public, a London-based digital transformation partner committed to helping the public sector turn innovative ideas into practical solutions. She's an online safety subject matter expert having worked with the public and private sector to tackle harms, including online child sexual abuse and exploitation, gender-based violence, human rights violations, and more. Maya helps clients to build evidence on key policy and regulatory challenges, identify targeted interventions, and design products to help empower and safeguard individuals online. Maya is driven by her passion to keep vulnerable populations safe online and her commitment to making the internet a safer place for all. Maya is a fellow optimist who I was connected with through Ryan Shea, who's the managing director at Public and a fellow Bold community member. Today's topic is one that AI greatly impacts, and that's online harms. While it's a bit of a different direction than most shows that we do at the intersection of creativity and AI, creative solutions and emerging safety tech are crucial for building safer online spaces. It's important to understand both the amazing creativity that AI unlocks and also to be aware of the potential risks from bad actors. And that's what today's conversation is about. Listen to understand the need for continuous effort, innovation, and cooperation to foster safer online environments. Awareness and education are important, and you'll hear how online harms are defined and impact different communities. Maya discusses the role of generative AI and emerging technologies in both exacerbating and also helping solve the issues related to security and online safety. You'll also get an international view of the regulatory landscape and tips on what you can do on an individual level. When it comes to building safe and creative online spaces, discover why the future is collaborative. Enjoy. But have you ever thought, what if this is all just a dream? Welcome to Creativity Squared. Discover how creatives are collaborating with artificial intelligence in your inbox, on YouTube, and on your preferred podcast platform. Hi, I'm Helen Todd, your host, and I'm so excited to have you join the weekly conversations I'm having with amazing pioneers in the space. The intention of these conversations is to ignite our collective imagination at the intersection of AI and creativity to envision a world where artists thrive. Maya, it is so good to have you on Creativity Squared. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. I met Maya through Ryan, who was at a conference I went to and works at the same company as Public, and super excited to have Maya on the show. Maya, for those who are meeting you for the first time, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your origin story? Sure, very happy to. Um, again, thanks so much for having me on the show. Really excited about our conversation today. So for everyone who's listening in, my name is Maya Davramasya and I'm head of online safety at an organization called Public. Happy to tell you all a little bit more about Public and our work, but I'm really passionate about building safer online spaces and I'm very privileged to do that in the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis. My passion for this area comes from my origin story, really. Um, I come from a mixed culture background. My mother is Indian, my father is German, but I spent the majority of my life in Japan and 
my grandparents on both sides also grew up in Japan, so really feels like home away from home. Um, but due to the fact that I had so many different cultures around me, um, the only thing that really felt like the, the golden thread, the thing that tied it all together was really policy and politics, which always captivated my interest. And then I ended up in Hong Kong um, in 2019 to 2020 when the protests were ongoing. And my job very quickly shifted to focusing on the online environments and spaces and combating issues such as um, hate speech, mis and disinformation, and trying to understand them from a brand reputational standpoint got me to make a shift in my career. And now I've been dedicating my efforts to the space um, ever since and really focusing on empowering and protecting people online with public. Thank you for sharing that. And you're based in the UK right now. So uh, it's great to have uh, have you join the show virtually. And one reason why I'm really excited to have you on the show is we've had uh, one attorney talk about kind of the different IP related issues um, to AI. Um, and it was a little bit more focused on the EU and the US. But, um, you know, the work that you're doing on online harm is so important. And you bring such a wonderful international perspective, which I'm excited to dive into. And just a note for our viewers and listeners, this episode, you know, is such a such an important topic to raise awareness about all of this. It's a little bit heavier than our normal content on the show. But it's all, for the most part, high level and, and not too deep. But for anyone who might have a, a need a trigger warning for some of the content, this is your trigger warning. Unfortunately, there are bad actors on the web and in society, and AI plays a big role in that. So with that little segue, um, why don't you tell us about public and uh, the work that public does and why it's so important and, and your role within public? Definitely. So Public is a digital transformation partner sitting out of London. As you mentioned, we support the public sector with turning innovative ideas into practical solutions. And really what that means in simple terms is that I sit at the intersection of the public sector and digital innovation. We have a range of different teams at Public. Um, we do learning and workforce transformation. We do health a lot of different things to support the public sector. But where I sit and where I focus my attention is the team called Security and Online Safety with a focus on online safety specifically. And really what my focus is there is that I work with governments, regulators, civil society organizations, and private sector as well to really advance the online safety space in what we call the policy to product loop. And what that means is that I'm I spend a bulk of my time really gathering evidence and trying to assess kind of policy landscapes and trying to understand what is needed based on the critical online harms that are um, impacting people online, but also spending a lot of time focusing on the interventions from a product landscape. And I'm looking forward to speaking about that today too. But just to say with this space, um, it's a very nascent space. Would love to speak to you again in five, 10 years and see how different the conversation is. But one of the greatest privileges that I have in my role is being able to sit at the intersection between so many different um, stakeholders, partners, collaborators in the space. So I really hope to be able to provide that perspective and the importance of collaboration, as well as my understanding of what artificial intelligence really means in the online safety landscape. It's so good to have you here. And, you know, I think generally, most people, when they hear, you know, deep fakes, they immediately go to the negative side of, um, you know, well, deep fakes inherently are negative and done without consent, but online harms, you know, expands and includes a lot of different things. And while some people might be aware of deep fakes, because that gets a lot of, um, you know, coverage in the press, can you kind of define for us when we say online harms, uh, what that means and what that encompasses as well? Yes, definitely. And mindful how you started this, Helen, want to mention that this may um yeah, don't want to re-traumatize anyone. I'm going to be speaking to different harm types, but I won't go into any detail about it. Just want to kind of give a brief overview of the realities that individuals are unfortunately facing online. So when I speak about online harms, um, really this is any behavior online which may impact or hurt someone physically or emotionally. Um, I think something that's really important to be mindful of here is that there's no real set definition or taxonomy 
of online harms um, as harms really kind of manifest in so many different ways and for so many different communities. So this is really my interpretation and what I've seen, but another person may give you a different perspective. But the way that I wanted to break it out is kind of overarching what are online harms, um, how they may impact specific individuals or communities, which is based on a lot of the work that I do, um, and then also how they can be used as tools by groups as well. So if I start more from the overarching perspective, I think what's important to kind of know about the online harms landscape is it, it may feel a bit foreign, but unfortunately it's a reality for so many different people, right? So when I speak about an overarching online harm, you would probably be able to list off kind of quite a quite a few of them. Things such as cyberbullying, intimidation, harassment, abuse, which can really be felt um, across a range of different individuals um, and platforms, experiences online. Then moving on into kind of specific communities, what I wanted to highlight out here is the fact that there are specific harms that are exacerbated more so in specific communities. So for example, one of the key harms that is oftentimes discussed, particularly from a regulatory perspective, is the harms that are inflicted on children. Um, there's a broad category um, that, which is kind of widely named as child sexual abuse and exploitation within um, which there's kind of a proliferation or a spread of what's called child sexual abuse material or CSAM. The majority of this material is actually of girls, unfortunately. It's unfortunate that it happens as a whole, but really 80% of it, based on latest reports that I've seen, are of girls. Women also are particularly targeted with online harms such as intimate image race abuse, um, which can be exacerbated by topic that you just brought up, defakes, of which 95% is pornographic material, majority of which, again, is women. Moreover than that, Black women and women who are in public positions particularly receive a lot of toxic content and hate speech directed at them. And I would be amiss not to acknowledge some of the work that's done by a charity in the UK landscape called Glitch, who have been really pivotal in being able to evidence and understand the space better. There are also tools, as I was mentioning, used by groups. Um, what you see in conflict situations, the proliferation of mis and disinformation, for example, which can be really, really harmful as well. But in summary, all to say, there's unfortunately quite a substantial range of online harms that are impacting individuals online today. And also these harms may result in other harms types as well, which is a scary thing that we need to be cognizant of when we're thinking through how to best intervene in this landscape as well. Thank you for going over that landscape. It is so multifaceted and really borderless when it comes to the internet. What what are some of the challenges that, you know, from the seat that you sit at, what are the challenges in, in addressing these? Yeah, definitely. And borderless is exactly the right term. It's the way that I use to describe it all the time. It's quite intimidating because it is borderless, but we have to be mindful of this fact. And the, the way that I approach my work, because I completely acknowledge that it's a very difficult space to be operating in. However, we need people to do it. And I would love to speak about some of the different work that is going on to combat kind of these borderless issues. But in terms of this let's say three issues that are top of mind for me. I, I I think one of them is really kind of the variance in understanding of what harms actually are. You know, um, you speak about something like online um, gender-based violence. It can be interpreted by different communities, different stakeholders in different ways. Um, even the kind of nuances between mis and disinformation are really, really hard to um, kind of label out but really the, the fact that there isn't kind of one joint definition and one joint taxonomy to understand this is challenging um there's also of course a massive challenge in being able to evidence these harms right um we have to think about the range of different challenges that come behind people actually being able to speak up um or technology being able to detect right so there's there's a challenge with ineffective reporting mechanisms. There's a challenge with normalization. There's a challenge with fear of um, speaking up. But there's also the challenge of because there's no definition, how do you know what to target exactly? Um, and then lastly as well, something that 
need to be mindful is the difficulty in tracking the evolution of harms as well through the uses of technology. And I think a big part of this is just the acknowledgement that um, harm types are evolving in the same way that technologies are evolving. So it's it's something that you really have to have a finger on the pulse, so to say, um, constantly to know what the key challenges are. And you had mentioned when we were speaking ahead of the interview that there's a difference between privacy and safety. And I was wondering if you could uh, expand on that. Yeah, I wouldn't say difference as much as there is a balance, really. Um, and I think this this comes into play particularly when you're speaking in the context of technology, because realistically speaking, it's important for privacy to be upheld, particularly for more vulnerable um, communities, speaking about journalists, for example, um, and women in, um, in, in public profiles. Um, but also the kind of safety and security angle is there's different technologies that could be used to best kind of um, intervene and block certain content. But how, do, how are you able to use those technologies while also enabling private spaces? And I think there are a lot of technologies, to be frank, that do work and operate in this space. But it, it is a question and kind of a constant balance that we're trying to think about and work through as we I guess, examine the space further. You mentioned generative AI as one of the issues exacerbating this issue. Can you kind of expand on on that and how it's changed the game a bit um, when it comes to online harm and safety? Yes, definitely. So I think all of the online harms that I just mentioned were really reflective of kind of, I don't want to say the world before Gen AI, but they're reflective of um, research that has been conducted over the past few years, ourselves included, at public. We're all quite curious to see how Gen AI is going to change the landscape, to be honest. And I would love to speak about it both in the, in the lens of how Gen AI may harm further harm or further exacerbate online harms, but also how it can support in terms of interventions um, and prevention. But starting off, I guess, um, thinking about how Gen AI has changed the landscape, realistically speaking, we're, we're in an environment where online harms can be scaled at a much more rapid pace than ever before. That's due to three key features, I would say. And we have a blog post on this um, on our website, which I would be happy to share over too. But the three key features are a low technical barrier to entry, right? People are able to use Gen AI. It's so easy to access. There's also with that rapid development of new content, a person is able to input um, something to a Gen AI chatbot, for example, and quickly develop specific materials that they're looking for. And with that content too, the third part is that it's so it's high quality, right? And it's hard to really be able to determine what material is um, is created by Gen AI or created by a human being, both which may be harmful, but need to recognize regardless. These three key challenges are on top of existing challenges um, with artificial intelligence, the challenges with bias, um, which can lead to discrimination, but also new challenges that come with AI models. For example, the, the ability for Gen AI to hallucinate, which is effectively to create its own material and then believe its own material. So really all of these together come to the kind of challenges at scale, right? But at the same time, this low technical barrier um, and this rapid development of content can really be used um, to power for good and be able to build evidence, build education, support with product development. So as much as I'm keeping a finger on the pulse in terms of what's potentially challenging or not working well, definitely focusing a lot of my attention in terms of what how this could be used for good over time. That's good to to hear. And I'm forever the optimist when it comes to all these things. So. Um, we have to be. We have to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you mentioned a link. I'll be sure any, any of the links uh, mentioned in the show uh, we'll put in the dedicated episode blog post and a link to that in the episode um, description. Well, I, I know yesterday a friend texted me an article about some teenagers who used AI to you know, 
put um, their classmates' faces on all this pornographic material. And it was New Jersey, I think. Um, But there's not really state law in New Jersey that protects from AI-generated, which opens up all this regulatory conversation. And we mentioned that it's borderless already, but can you kind of give us a feel of the regulatory landscape, where it's at now and the gaps are where it's needed to? Yes, definitely. So one of the things I think, again, which is a privilege about working in this space is that it's a very nascent space. And as a result, we're really kind of working in support um, of the different regulators who are looking to regulate this space. And again, why I think it would be great to have a conversation or five, 10 years to see how things have changed. But let me give you a quick overview in terms of the online safety regulatory landscape, which then links to AI in the context of solutions. It also links to other types of regulation, including regulation that's coming out in the AI landscape itself. So in the context of online safety regulation, um, really there's quite a few countries that have began to regulate already. Australia was the first one to regulate. Um, They came up with the concept really in 2015 and then had an iteration in 2018 for their Online Safety Act. Um, This really is a focus on child safety and cyberbullying. But in terms of the interventions that they're looking at, it's really been focused on thinking about the principles of safety by design and education and transparency. Um, And what's been really exciting, and I encourage listeners to take a look at the work by the eSafety Commissioner, who is the regulator of the Online Safety Act in Australia. They have been doing a lot of effort um, and have really kind of built their regulatory teeth over time and have been publishing quite a few transparency reports, which are quite interesting to see as other countries start to build um, and reflect on this space from a regulatory lens. in the context of what this means from an intervention point, they're focused um, on driving um, platforms to really take proactive measures um, with reasonable steps, but really focusing on safety of users um, and following up on complaints, following the principles, again, of safety by design and education. Now, in terms of the countries that I'm about to speak about, they're slightly different because they're all really emerging as we speak. Um, There's Singapore that brought into action its Online Safety Act um, at the beginning of this year, really on the focus of, um, again, reducing exposure, but instead looking at codes of practice. So really focusing more so on guidance on specific harms. This is then different to the EU, which um, also just about to start regulating um, as of August 2023, um, focuses on quite a wide range of online harms, but really focusing more on kind of a notice and takedown approach, which means that platforms will ultimately be held liable if they're is knowledge of illegal materials um, and they fail to remove it and they fail to kind of communicate transparently about it. I'm now getting to the UK, which to be honest is very exciting because um, we just reached the last stage of the bill's passage before enforcement as of the last two weeks. Um, So we are going to um, have the Online Safety Act come into play soon, Um, really focused heavily on illegal content. So really looking at child safety um, as well as um, terrorism. Um, But the UK has placed a really, really hem- heavy emphasis on active moderation. So really focusing on technical interventions, oftentimes with the usage of AI, to be able to um, prevent specific types of content from reaching users um, at the onset. But it's an exciting space. There's more regulation to come. Canada, South Africa, um, other countries are also looking into it as well. I know that the US has looked at a few different kind of legislative measures as well. For example, the Kids Online Safety Act. But really the theme here more than anything is that there's a variety of approaches, but the harm type that's really being focused on more than anything is focusing on child safety first, which I think considering that's the one thing that really people are able to agree upon. And trust me, there's a lot of things that people don't agree upon on this space, but everyone really agrees that child safety needs to be at the the forefront of regulation. So that's a bit on the online safety side. Do you have any questions there or do you want me to drill into the kind of 
AI lens of this a bit more too. I read your uh, blog post ahead of this interview and you, you touched on this, but one of the things that you pointed out was that there's a system led and a harm led approach. And I was wondering, is that when you say that the, the different approaches of the regulation, is that some of the different approaches that you see, or is that more from an industry standpoint? No, definitely. That's some of the different approaches that we see. And really what that means is it kind of speaks to how narrow or widespread um, regulation can be. I think when you're speaking about harm specific, so for example, the UK's Online Safety Act soon to be is very, very narrow in its approach. It's focusing on very specific illegal harm types. And that's its first approach. And I'm sure that we'll kind of revisit that over time and see um, how it's landing, um, both with users, but also the platforms who are going to be um, under regulation versus a systems-led approach, which is a little bit more widespread. I would probably say that the the EU is quite a bit more widespread because it's not only looking at um, the harm types that being child safety, for example, but it's also looking at intellectual property, it's looking at crisis management. It's a little bit more widespread and, and a little bit more open in terms of the specific types of um, organizations that it's going to be um, regulating. And, and one thing I did uh, want to mention, because you pointed out that AI can help uh, detect online content, you know, on the back end before it gets published and whatnot. And there is, uh, and uh, there's a lot of articles that have come up about this too. Um, another component to this online landscape, when you talk about moderation, are is, are the human components that are looking at this harmful content as well and evaluating, right. which uh, AI helps alleviate some of that. But, you know, the people who have to monitor, you know, they can be traumatized by this content. So it's a very multifaceted field. And I don't want to um, forget about that uh the human side of, of keeping the internet safe as well, because that's something that is always top of mind when, when I hear these. Um, but you mentioned segueing into what AI means uh, in this space. So I'd love to have you expand on that some more. Definitely. And, and just to say, completely agree with you on that. Um, it's something that comes up in conversation quite a bit. And I I have to admit, I don't personally work with human moderators, but there's a big emphasis in this landscape, which I do a lot of research on, in trying to understand how content moderation can be used to prevent users from seeing specific content, but also to prevent human moderators from seeing specific content and ensuring that some of the most harmful things that you're seeing on the internet um, you reduce the risk of harm really to the human moderators and you protect their mental health and well-being because it's so critical and there are countless people who are really working day in and day out to try and um, safeguard this incredibly complex space. So just to say in agreement on that um, and then to your question about the AI landscape. So it's what I find really interesting about online safety is that it kind of captures a lot of different regulatory environments all at once. There's um, regulations around child protection, privacy, security, etc. And what's starting to come up, of course, is AI regulation as well. And the reason why I have a smile on my face is because it was a really big week for AI this week. For people who are listening, we're in the last week of um, October 2023 right now, but just some things that have happened as of recent is um, the US, um, President Biden has put out an executive order on AI, um, kind of affirming the, the interest in regulating the AI landscape and placing new safety requirements on the landscape, focusing on safety tests, um, and really looking at transparency here. I think for the U.S. audience, too, if you're looking to learn more about this space, one of the newspapers and people that I follow quite actively who I feel gives really great overviews um, is someone named Casey Newton, and he um, does a newsletter called Platformer, which is really, really helpful. Um, but also what happened this week is that there is an AI um, summit in the U.K., so Prime Minister Sunak has brought together 28 countries looking at a range of different kind of issue areas within the AI landscape, not focusing on the um, regulatory landscape as much, but really thinking about the different risks um, and the different types of collaborative efforts that could be put into place to build out a system of best practice 
over time. And one of the outcomes of that was a non-binding agreement to um, enable government to test their models for safety risks um, with a range of some of the largest platforms on our planet. But some of the exciting things that are happening right now, and then just it would be amiss to say to not speak about the EU regulation and the EU AI Act, which is kind of one of the furthest um, regulations in the space, um, really trying to, again, take a risk-based approach and will likely be enforced in the next year. But in terms of how these all overlap with one another, ultimately, online safety can be, sorry, online harms can be exacerbated through AI, and it can also be prevented through AI. So what's really critical about the use of AI regulation and how it stands with online safety is thinking about um, those potential benefits and harms, but really ensuring that in that thought process, that there aren't um, kind of barriers to innovation while also protecting individuals against risks over time. It has been a very exciting week uh, in the AI world. And and also it's, you know, there's a lot happening in the world too that this conversation has a lot of implications for um, that I want to acknowledge. Um, but, you know, one, one thing, because there is a platform side to all of this and a lot of like the big platforms like Meta um, have all these online trust and safety teams that have really worked on these subjects, but then of recent, the last couple of years, they've been reducing their online trust and safety teams, most notably Twitter, now known as X. Um, and really the the people at these platforms, their teams have been reduced. So what what is your pulse on kind of the, the platform side um, of the equation with this uh, exciting regulatory side? My personal belief is they, they kind of go hand in hand. And I, I'm not speaking to the unfortunate kind of layoffs that are going in um, on the platform side. But what I think is that as regulation continues to develop in the space, platforms are the first people to be required to take action based on those regulations. As a result, you need the right people in place to be able to effectively understand and adapt and articulate those regulations to your product teams um, and ensure that policy is reflective of those regulations as well. So while I think it definitely has been a difficult year for trust and safety, I'm I'm optimistic as as you are too. I'm an optimistic person, but I'm really optimistic that um, the movement of regulation and the impending regulation will continue to kind of draw focus on trust and safety teams over time um, and continue to try and work hand in hand really to ensure that um, there is adequate safeguarding as incentivized by regulation, but as supported by platforms and driven by platforms as well. And I think that's one of the interesting and exciting things about this space too, is that there are so many different actors involved. It's not only about platforms and regulators, it's also about the um, safety tech. So the developers of these, um, these intervent the technical interventions, it's about educators, it's about civil society who are able to provide um, support as well. So it, it's quite extensive and it requires a lot of collaboration. And I do think if you have all of those different stakeholders with regulators and platforms at the kind of lead of it all, we'll hopefully continue to um, move to safer online spaces. Since you mentioned Casey Newton, I'm a huge fan of Casey Newton, uh, his newsletter, and he also has a great uh, podcast with Kevin Roos called Hard Fork. And also in my own podcast, it's the one that I always listen to every week uh, in my podcast diet, I guess you could say. And when we talk about the borderless tech and you know different countries and EU um, approaching this, oftentimes like you know, the, the web then has like second class citizens, like some and based on the country have more protections than other. And from a, an international lens, what does all the, the regulatory um, movement mean for people who might not be in these other countries? Is there a spillover effect from the platforms or is there still a big gap for um, an, an international solution for, you know, maybe someone in a country that doesn't have strong online safety or online harms regulation? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and ultimately, I don't think we'll fully recognize the challenges with this until regulation is coming into play at a further rate than what it is right now. As mentioned, it's really been Australia alone thus far. So with regards to the international landscape, 
in my kind of optimist hat again, what I do think is that as these massive markets are being expected to regulate um, and are are enforcing regulation, there will be spillover effects because ultimately we have to acknowledge as well that these platforms are predominantly sitting in these markets as well. So it's not only impacting their user base, but it's impacting their headquarters. It's something that's going on around the people who are really conceptualizing these um, these topics. So I do feel that the spillover effects, um, there's potential for it, and I'm hopeful about that as well. Um, another thing that I'm hopeful about in this space is that there is convening between different regulatory bodies as well to create more of a kind of unified global understanding. And what's been really great to see from that perspective is it's the um, regulators who have regulated. So thinking about um, Australia, Singapore, for example, but also thinking about um, those who have not regulated yet. So South Africa, but who are looking to do so. So I think with that support and collaboration um, and back and forth dialogue, we'll hopefully get to a place where um, any interventions that are found can be shared in an effective way. And that's something that I can say over and over and over and over again, I think with the space that I work in, the solutions are there. We need people to talk to each other. It's a, it's a big, 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 big part on that because there's so many brilliant people and so many brilliant minds. We need the merge to happen. So I'm hoping regulation will help with that as well. And I know one episode that we have on the show uh, is with Andy Parsons, who heads up Adobe's content authenticity initiative. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier on in the conversation is when you see content online, knowing how much it's been manipulated with AI or not. And Adobe is really leading the way with a content standard um, to uh, in, uh, encrypted in the content Um a digital signature to help with that. And it's a standard that they're hoping to have widely adopted as like one tool in the toolbox to understand what's been touched by AI or not. And, you know, in certain fields, you know, like journalism, um, it becomes uh, much more important than maybe conceptual art, for example. Um, but you did mention different solutions and intervention, uh, intervention points. So I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that uh, area as well. Yeah, definitely. And um, just on your point around Adobe, I think that's great. You know, we we need the innovation to be coming from everyone. We we need to source innovative solutions, understand what's working well, and be able to share those effectively. So I'm always encouraged to hear of different intervention points, regardless of who it's coming from, really. So I'm glad that you um, brought that in. Thank you. Um, with regards to some of the other interventions, um, the ones that um, we're seeing quite a bit. So I focus a lot of my time and energy on the safety tech landscape. And what safety tech means is effectively technologies um, or solutions that facilitate safer online experiences. And with that, that could be anything from content moderation, it could be kind of um, age verification, it could be a range of different things, but really focusing on the preventative aspect in particular um, of online safety. There's also a huge emphasis on education, um, and I would be happy to share some resources later on in the podcast too um, of different CSOs as well as educators themselves who are focusing on this landscape and providing a lot of really helpful um, resources on the different types of online harms um, that individuals may be facing and how to best think about them really. There's also another angle to this which is civil society organizations who are so resilient being at the forefront of really supporting communities or supporting individuals who have been um, affected by online harms, building out toolkits and trying to understand how to support um, as being an active bystander online, what that looks like, what different harm types mean, what resources are available. So there is quite a lot of different kind of conversations um, and interventions that are being built out alongside what's happening from regulators and platforms as well. And I think really, as I was mentioning beforehand, um, it would be incredible to continue to see collaboration in this space. And it's an immense privilege for the work that I do to be able to sit at the intersection of all of these different intervention points and really be able to see 
what's working and how um, how people can potentially continue to work together. And one thing I know that we talked about ahead of this interview too is outside of even the online landscape is offline sex trafficking and harm to women is all too common and heartbreaking in, in all forms. And one thing in any of these instances is just believing women and supporting women who are often targeted because that is is an issue. So baseline uh, for anyone who's listening, if a woman uh, right. comes out or anyone shares about a harm that's caused, like believe them and then seek resources to help. Um, I think that's one very, very important thing um, that I know has come up in a lot of different conversations. And I don't know, have you seen the movie? It's a documentary called Another Body. No, I haven't. I'll link to it in the description. I, I actually haven't seen it, but I saw a presentation on it at South by Southwest this past March. And it's a documentary that follows a gal who uh, was deep faked and then follows her story. And they actually use the same technology to mask her identity within the film, showing how video and photorealistic uh, the technology is. So that's one way of using deep fakes in a positive way to hi highlight the harms. But for anyone who's like interested in learning more about it, it's a great documentary that really highlights the nuance and the issues and the trauma that you, even though it's like an online harm, one of the takeaways from the presentation is like, it can still be so traumatizing, even if it's not a physical harm, which is something that really stood out to me. There's also a documentary from the BBC on this. Um, so I'll make sure to find that and link that as well. I'll be sure to link that in the description. And um, you mentioned safety tech. And actually, in one of our conversations, you uh, also mentioned uh, creativity related to safety tech. So I'd love for you to kind of dive deeper into that with our audience and listeners, uh, the safety tech component side of things. Yeah, definitely. So as mentioned, safety tech is really focusing on technologies or solutions um, to facilitate safer online spaces. Um, but I think there is a really exciting creative element to this, you know? I mean, it's obviously a really difficult space, but um, there are so many safety tech providers who are building out these incredibly fascinating solutions to be able to try and intervene and prevent specific harms from occurring. So that could be from a harm-specific lens, that could be from a data-type-specific lens, or it could be layered in a lot of different ways. But um, for my work, which sometimes, I guess, from an outsider or insider view, can feel less creative because we're focusing on very specific things. What we're able to see from the safety tech landscape is a lot of innovation and a lot of creativity in trying to think through how to tackle these very specific targeted harms. Just to kind of conceptualize what safety tech is again in comparison to cybersecurity, which I think people know a lot more. So cybersecurity focuses on systems. Safety tech focuses on humans. Think about it in that way. They kind of complement each other. They work in parallel, so to say. But really, there is a lot of bottom line benefits to safety tech adoption that go beyond just an individual human. You know, there's a lot around brand integrity, reputational awareness, um, user retention, reduced churn. Um, reducing um, customer acquisition costs, but really being able to creatively think through a solution to mitigate some of the harms before they even reach a human being. And I would love to bring up a few examples of safety tech providers who are operating in this space right now who we really admire. So one of them is Modulate. Um, they're a US-based company, and their focus really is on audio detection. So they work a lot on gaming in particular, and trying to understand kind of toxic content from audio communications between users, which they do through the uses of AI. A UK-based provider that I really admire is called Unitary. And what Unitary does instead is they really focus on what they call contextual moderation. So taking that for an example, if they see a specific type of online harm, if you see, let me develop this out a little bit. If you see a meme, for example, and it's just an image, if you see the image alone, you may not think much about it, right? It's just an image. However, if you see, if you're able to see the text that's embedded on top of the image or 
audio that's embedded or where it sits on a platform as well, it could look very different, actually. So that's what Unitary does. They focus on what they call this contextual moderation, really taking kind of layers of moderation, taking it all together to bring together a multimodal approach. And another safety tech provider that I wanted to call out, again, is a US-based one, who really focus on kind of the end-to-end trust and safety environment and system. They're called Cinder, um, and they integrate across platform needs to help kind of centralize trust and safety decision-making and really taking into consideration a lot of the different data inputs um, that could come into a trust and safety professional or an operations professional's minds when it comes into really safeguarding their users. But there's so much creativity in this space and we're always speaking to really, really interesting um, solutions providers who are working with AI to try and, um, yeah, figure out how this can work, figure out how to take the burden off of users, off of platforms, off of governments, etc. Um, and actually, we were, wrote a report on this last year called the International State of Safety Tech. And I can say that there's some more um, reporting on it that's due to come out in the next few months, but really kind of articulates this landscape as a whole and provides a lot more case studies. But it is a really exciting space to see creativity, AI, and being able to mitigate against online harms. Yeah, with the complex issues, we do need creative solutions. Uh, so I uh, I love that you're bringing up creativity and with safety tech uh, on the show. Um, and I love uh, just how uh, public and the work that you do is so collaborative, because I really do believe that the future has to be collaborative to address some of the the biggest uh, challenges that we're facing right now. Um, you know, and one of the things that we mentioned, the role of platforms uh, and, you know, platforms have kind of had this self-regulation in interesting ways. You have Meta with their oversight board, even OpenAI is developing their own um, I think they're calling it the red, the redlining team. Um, but can you uh, kind of expand on, um, yeah, just uh, more of the interventions from the platforms that you're seeing uh, and anything else uh, I might have missed uh, to ask you on the, the safety tech front? Yes, definitely. So from a platform perspective, of course, there's kind of larger bodies um, like the oversight board, which are able to really hold um, in this case, meta to account in terms of some of the decision-making that they make. There's also a lot of different ways that um, these stakeholders and safety tech in particular is collaborating with different stakeholders across the ecosystem. So, for example, when I was explaining the UK Online Safety Act, um, the regulation coming out of the UK really focuses on kind of preventative measures moderation and gives an open space for safety tech to really grow and flourish and for um, for platforms to partner with safety tech as well to try and advance some of the um, moderation tactics that are going on on their platforms. There's also different ways that safety tech, for example, can support um, with education or civil society organizations interventions by being able to layer on their solution um, with specific um, resources or tools that could be available for users in the event that a specific type of content is detected or if specific content is about to be shared and you want to prevent or provide a nudge to someone to say, hey, maybe that's not what you want to be sharing. And also to kind of close the loop on that too, um, I really believe in the work that different educators as well as civil society organizations are doing across the landscape to support platforms and regulators as well. An example that I always love to bring up here and would be happy to link to is a partnership between Bumble and a UK-based organization called Chen to develop out a product called Bloom. And what Bloom does is it provides trauma-informed resources to victims of online abuse. And it's built into the platform and gives specific resources to anyone who's looking for it. And I think that's a really beautiful way that you can take the resources that are already made available from civil society organizations who are working directly with um, individuals to understand their needs and build it out on larger scale platforms in the unfortunate event that someone needs it, but would be, would be happy to share that one as well. Please do. And I guess if you don't mind sharing, because we've talked really at a, a lot of high levels of the different harms and regulation and stuff, but are there just some tips for our listeners and viewers um, 
you know, we're all on our screens online all the time, probably way too much, how we can be as consumers and, you know, concerned parents, aunts, people uh, in communities, like what we can do on an individual level um, to, to like be aware of this and what we can do, or if you have any tips like that, that you can share. Definitely. Look, there are so many resources that are available in the space. And I, I think in my role, I need to be sharing these resources more often. So again, lots of things I want to be linking here. Um, but there's really a lot of incredible organizations that are already putting in the work for us, right? And it's just, I think from an individual basis, um, I think what I would say is that this is a very daunting space. Um, it can be very triggering. And of course, you don't want it to be traumatizing or re-traumatizing in any way or form. It's also a space that is not difficult to kind of understand. You know, if you're online, you can understand how a bad interaction can come up. Um, and oftentimes, unfortunately, the reality is that people have either experienced or witnessed specific types of harms to themselves or the communities around them. What I'll say with that is that you have a lot more power just in your knowledge of being an online citizen than you may know. And what it is, is about reinforcing that power through some of the resources that are already made available. So some of those I would love to flag already um, is one from NECMIC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, they provide resources for parents, for educators and others based on age. So that's really, really helpful, actually, if you're looking for specific interventions or trying to understand what could be best, most useful for a middle school student versus a high school student, they have that there. Similarly, um, the Internet Watch Foundation also focuses on child safety. They provide guidance to um, parents online. There's also organizations that literally exclusively are focused on this area. There's an organization called Parent Zone in the UK. It's a civil society um, organization that provides guidance for parents. Um, and they also have built out a tool with Google, actually, which is specifically for um, children between the ages of 7 to 11, I think, called Be Internet Legends, where they're able to learn about how to be safe online through gamification. So making it exciting and interesting for them. There's also charities such as Glitch and Chen, who I mentioned beforehand, both of them, who provide a lot of resources in terms of how to document online abuse, being an active bystander, thinking about toolkits, and just making sure that you're an informed online citizen. And this really goes back to my initial part, point that you, ha you have a lot of power being online allow yourself to kind of use these resources to give you more power um, and be a kind of responsible but also safe citizen online, um, whether you're sitting in the UK um, or in the US or if you're interacting as we're doing right now. I'll be sure to include all of these links, uh, which we have a lot <laughs> from today's episode uh, in the dedicated yeah, episode. Sorry, uh, so many links. <laughs> <laughs> We're giving everyone a lot of homework, uh, but all good and important uh, homework. Um, um, well, and because uh, I, you know, I'm so enjoying this conversation and I know we can go on and on. Um, but unfortunately, we've got to come to a close soon. Um, but we've talked about a lot of things going on across the ecosystem. What, what gives you the, the most hope right now? I think what gives me the most hope, I'll say regulation, but because of the foundation of it. And let me explain what I mean by that. I think regulation is an outcome of years and years and years of collaborative efforts that have been ongoing across the ecosystem. Efforts by platforms to protect their users, efforts by civil society organizations to raise awareness, build advocacy and campaign for um, users' protections online, advocacy and work by educators. All of this has come together to build up kind of a, a system that is now being enforced through regulation. So I say that regulation is exciting because I feel that it's truly an outcome 
of a lot of the collaborative efforts and the um, interventions and the work that has already been put into into play over years. So I'm excited to see where it takes us now um, and how we adapt over time because we're going to have to continue adapting. And, and I guess one question on the regulatory front, because it, it is such a, a nice tool to enshrine our values um, into into law. With the, the tech moving so fast, is the regulation that you're seeing coming out, is it flexible in adapting to the new tech? Or is it one of those things where we're going to have to, using creative imaginatory regulation or having to keep adapting and editing the regulation too? Or is there flexibility in that, just out of curiosity? It's a great point again. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's unfair to say, but I always feel that regulation is inherently not the most flexible. (laughs) However, fair. (laughs) I think, well, just because of the fact of like the amount of time that it takes to get regulation in place. However, I think that looking at regulation in the context of online spaces is, is so unique and so demanding. So regulators will have to be flexible. You don't have a choice, right? In the in the timing that the Online Safety Bill, now Online Safety Act, came into play um, in the UK, um, generative AI became accessible to communities at large globally. You're going to have to be able to speak to that and adapt to that, you know? So to the extent that I think it's flexible or not, I don't think it's as flexible as we need it to be, but I'm still hopeful that we can get there. And I think that the continual evolution of technology will demand that regulation stays flexible. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that comes to play over the next few years. Same. Uh, And we'll definitely have to bring you back uh, to do that check-in. I feel like you mentioned five to 10 years out. (laughs) I can even picture five years out from right now (laughs) with how fast things uh, things are moving. Um, Well, one question I like to ask uh, all the guests on the show is if you want our listeners and viewers to remember one thing from our conversation or from the work that you do, what's that one thing that you want them uh, to walk away with? I I would really say, um, I know it's a daunting space, um, but there's a lot of tools to help you feel safe and empowered. And so as much as you may feel overwhelmed and scared, and honestly, many people have been really hurt by online harms, just to know that in those vulnerable moments that there's an ecosystem of actors who are looking to support and there's an abundance of resources that are already available and will continue to grow. Thank you. And is there anything else um, that you want to um, share with our listeners and viewers today? Well, I have a a lot of research that's coming up in the next few months. (laughs) Um, So we'll be very happy to share that um, and very happy to share over the links, but also um, I'm very open to talk about this topic and to connect. Um, If you'd like to learn more, do feel free to reach out particularly on LinkedIn. And if you want to follow me on LinkedIn, that's where I post um, the majority of research or thought pieces. So would be very happy to engage there. And I'll, again, be sure to link to all of this and sign up for the Creativity Squared newsletter and the public newsletter so that uh, you don't miss uh, any of the research when it comes out, because we'll be sure to include it uh, in our newsletter as well. Uh, Well, Maya, thank you so much for, uh, one, just the amazing work that you do, because it's, you know... I know it's not the easiest work um, and for your time and just sharing all of your insights and perspective with us. So it's been so good to have you on the show. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me and for making the space. I really appreciate it. And I hope that people can see the creativity and the chaos of the online safety landscape. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We're just getting started and would love your support. Subscribe to Creativity Squared on your preferred podcast platform and leave a review. It really helps. And I'd love to hear your feedback. What topics are you thinking about and want to dive into more? I invite you to visit creativitysquared.com to let me know. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter so you can easily stay on top of all the latest news at the intersection of AI and creativity. Because it's so important to support artists, 10% of all revenue Creativity Squared generates will go to ArtsWave, a nationally recognized nonprofit that supports over 100 arts organizations. Become a premium newsletter subscriber or leave a tip on the website to support this project and ArtsWave. 
and premium newsletter subscribers will receive NFTs of episode cover art and more extras to say thank you for helping bring my dream to life. And a big, big thank you to everyone who's offered their time, energy, and encouragement and support so far. I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. This show is produced and made possible by the team at Play Audio Agency. Until next week, keep creating.